Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. This is Episode 6, Drafting a Legacy. In my last episode, I discuss the Riakul affair and the extraordinary drama that occurred ending in its annexation away from China and into Japan in 1879. I also spoke about the Samurai Rebellion of the Satsuma Samurai and the hardships the early Meiji, Meiji government and its movement put on the Samurais. We also learned that former United States President, former General, Ulysses S. Grant, visited Japan, the first to do so. Finally, I ended it with a discussion of Korea and the Meiji's Treaty of Kanghua with the Hermit Kingdom. Today, I want to start with a brief update on the Japanese relationship with China over issues they had with Korea. I also want to make some additional comparisons or contrasts between Meiji Japan and Qing Dynasty China. Most importantly, we will learn about the important persons and events that led up to and influenced the Meiji government to adopt its national constitution. It is the Meiji's most important and lasting legacy. In the last episode, I discussed the events leading to the Treaty of Kanghua in 1876 between Japan and Korea. Chinese acquiescence to that treaty may well had been an implicit acknowledgement by the Qing dynasty that Korea was no longer a vassal kingdom under the Manchus. Needless to say, that treaty did not end the hostilities or mistrust between China and Japan. In 1885, Japan and China entered into the Treaty of Tianjin, or Tianjin, where both countries agreed to withdraw their militaries from Korea, stop their military training there, and notify each other if their military were sent back into Korea. Something tells me, however, that the friction between Japan and China would not long stay inert. By the mid-1880s, it was clear that Japan had succeeded in making the transition from a feudal society to a modern one. It was strong enough to fend off further aggressions. The restoration, to this point, 
had succeeded because, partially, of the Japanese unique habits and commitments that are not easily defined. Of course, the underappreciated in the conversation were the ordinary citizens of Japan with their remarkable work ethic and patriotism. I find it interesting to read historians struggling to pigeonhole Japan's Reformation and Restoration. I believe the Meiji Restoration is made the more fascinating because it was unique and unprecedented. The entire movement was forced on a peaceful, stable nation largely due to the threat of foreign domination. It is well to remember that point as I talk about Japan's next phase, a national constitution. Before I get to that, this is a good point to discuss some comparisons and contrasts between the Meiji government and the Chinese Qing dynasty. The Meiji Restoration and the Chinese self-strengthening phase, or also known as the Tongzhi Restoration, occurred more or less simultaneously. So I think this is a really ideal situation to to make an apples-to-apples comparison. By the way, if you seek more detail about the Tongzhi Restoration or or the self-strengthening phase, please go to Episode 17 of my Season 1 podcast series on the Chinese Qing Dynasty. For now, I only want to stack these two movements together for a broad review and comparison. The Manchu self-strengthening phase was generally conducted using some Western-style ideas and notions, but, and this is really important to understand the difference between these nations' reaction to and outcomes to the foreign aggression in the 19th century. The Manchu self-strengthening phase was generally conducted using some Western-style ideas and notions, but only to the extent to defend itself from foreign invasions and internal rebellions and to restore traditional order. The self-strengthening phase was not a revolution. While the movement used Western ideas and technology to make the monarchy better, they were not used to reform the country. Generally speaking, the self-strengthening phase was limited in its desired outcome. Hence, The results were limited. Much of the modernization that occurred in China during this phase was to its military and its weapons. Political reforms were few and small. The Meiji Restoration, on the other hand, was a revolution. An odd one, as I have discussed, but it still carried with it all the hallmarks of a revolution. 
The Japanese during this time had nearly limitless objectives and goals, so the results of their efforts would, not unexpectedly, have far-reaching consequences. They had more room and flexibility to apply a full range of reforms. Also, let us not forget that the Japanese during their revolution had in the lead many elites, some highly educated and internationally cultured, running the new government. For the duration of the Chinese restorations, they had the Empress Dowager and her advisors. She only seemed to be into the restoration efforts for the sake of her own political power. The Manchus never seemed to have a grand plan or strategy with respect to its restoration phase. We learned the last episode that the farmers in Japan overall had not fared well in early Meiji Japan. We also learned the reasons why they did not fare well. I want to I won't repeat them again here, but I will say this their situation worsened in the 1880s. It was clear they were struggling with the heavy land tax burden. That burden was proportionally heavier than it was on commerce and industry. Many of these aggrieved farmers eventually came to support the notion of representative government or some form of popular rights. The farmers' support would aid and provide more impetus to the freedom and people's rights movement beginning to take shape in the early 1880s in Japan. By the 1880s, the original top leaders of the Meiji Restoration were nearly all gone. Seigo Takamori, that led the Satsuma Samurai Rebellion, had died in 1877 in that rebellion. He, if you remember, was one of the original samurai in the famous Satsuma Choshu alliance that toppled the Tokugawa shogunate. Iwakura Tomami, the ambassador that went to the Western nations in 1873 and 1870, I mean, I'm sorry, in 1871 through 1873, seeking to renegotiate the unequal treaties, he died in 1883. The second generation of Meiji leaders began to emerge in the late 1870s. This generation was different than the first and they had their own ideas about what was good for Japan. They all had matured and came of age after the Restoration. They were all young, highly educated elites. Some had been educated at the best Western schools in England and at Harvard in law, science, medicine, and philosophy. Some were multilingual, primarily Japanese English, and French. So they were a diverse bunch. Probably Japan's best of the best. While not important to remember their names, I want to mention a few of them. 
Toku Tomi Soho was an articulate and prolific political commentator. He was born of non-samurai parents and largely only in his 20s when he made some of the most important contributions to the current political debate on popular rights and representative government. He most famously promoted equal rights. Another individual was Ido Hirobuma, eventually to become Japan's first prime minister and chief draftsman of the Meiji Constitution, was another. Others were Mayaki Setsure, Shiga Shigatataka, Shugara Jugo, and Komura Jutaro, and many others, Okuwa Shigendo Obo, and foreign advisors as well. All contributed in some way in building the new government, or drafting a constitution, or ministers in the government, or provided essential political discussion. I look at these persons similarly as I look at the founders of the United States. I admit a rough comparison as the founders of the United States Continental Congress or the Constitutional Framers. And besides being young and highly educated, they had other common characteristics or backgrounds. For one, almost none of them had any connection with Satsuma or Choshu oligarchy that were prominent at the time of the Restoration. Second, they were not generally enamored with the West, despite some of them had lived in the West and had received their educations there. In some cases, they were anti-West, at least in their opinions of Western political institutions, and maybe even a bit anti-democratic. They wanted to avoid the blind Westernization their predecessors followed. Instead of superficial Westernization, they urged national progress based on cultural and intellectual values. They tended to revert back to more traditional Japanese customs and values. They rejected the notion that in order to Westernize and modernize, they must also include Western morals and values. No, no. Their views were far more surgical in approach. They believed they could achieve progress by remaining Japanese to the core and yet use some of the Western ideas and values to enhance their experience. Let me repeat that because it's very important. This second generation of Meiji leaders believed they could achieve progress by remaining Japanese to the core and yet use some of the Western ideas and values to enhance their experience. In my own experience, that statement perfectly summarizes my observations of contemporary Japan. This lurch at that moment 
away from the West is actually predictable and not surprising. This swing from the West would be the first in many more of Japan's pendulum swings back and forth between pro-Western and anti-Western sentiment. Other historians have noted that in other non-Western nations attempting to modernize, they see the same pendulum swings to and away from the West. The 1800s in Japan was characterized as one of those backward swings. Certain aspects of the West were abandoned, such as ballroom dancing, which had been all the rage with the Meiji's first set of leaders. Later, in the 1890s, this anti-Western bias would be explained by the Meiji government in a document it published, Imperial Rescript on Education. That document extolled traditional Confucian and Japanese values. As I have repeatedly stated, and bears repeating again, one of the central aims in constructing and adopting a written constitution is so the Meiji government would be taken seriously and rid itself from its unequal treaties. But there were other purposes as well. A constitution would be a, ma- a means of controlling the emperor and his advisors. Japan also wanted to make a public declaration of its citizens' basic fundamental rights. And maybe, as important as ridding itself of the unequal treaties, the elites wanted to provide a way their efforts and the continued progress of Japan would continue and outlive their lives. So in 1879, the Meiji Emperor requested from these individuals I mentioned their views on plans for a written constitution. And in 1881, he got a response from one of the elites, Okawa Shigen Obo. He wanted to adopt the full English parliamentarian system. But, That system was considered radical by his peers. It was also a wake-up call to the rest of them that they better come up with other views and ideas, and quickly. Shikinobo's plan was quickly rejected, and it was decided to take a cautious approach toward the goal of the written constitution. The rest of them promised to the emperor they would present him with a written constitution by 1890. Ito Hirobumi, I mentioned him earlier, took the lead to draft a constitution. Think of him as the James Madison of Japanese constitutional draftsmanship. Anyway, from the beginning of the process, there had been a basic agreement the Constitution would be strongly conservative. Hirobumi Ito led a study mission to Europe in 1882 to observe various constitutions. The mission looked at the English, French, 
German, Prussian, and Austrian constitutions. The mission came away believing the German and Austrian models were the best fit for Japan. These models gave greater authority to the monarch and limited the powers of the legislature. The mission may have also been persuaded that Germany and Austria were less West, if you will, than the other constitutions they reviewed. And so when the mission returned from Europe, it submitted its report and recommendation to the Privy Council. The Privy Council had been organized by the emperor as an advisory body to him and at this juncture to deliberate on constitutional drafts. Next episode, the Meiji government will have its constitution with all of its warts and pimples, as they say. I will also discuss some of what was and was not contained in that document and its implementation. I also want to give a few details on how that modernization was working for them. So thank you. And it has been a pleasure. Thank you.